Welcome back, everybody, to another installment of the Two Tongues Podcast. Here we are again. Chris and Kyle. Down in Stu Hart's dungeon. Yes, indeed. Hey, man. <laughs> do you know that reference? Stu, Stu Hart's dungeon? Stu Hart. Listen, I'm going to tell you what I think that means. What do you think it Coming means? Coming from you. From me. I'm going to assume that Hart is associated with wrestling. And that Steve Hart is the patriarch of uh, Owen Hart and Bret Hart. It's Stu Hart, but... So what did I say? Steve? Steve, yeah. <laughs> Steve uh, Hart. Is that what it is? Yeah, absolutely. You hit God. that on the head, man. You're like fucking Sherlock Holmes. So so when I had my polo... When I had my solo podcast that I've recorded and will be releasing on Wednesday, uh, one of the things I talk about in there is uh, intuition. Yeah. And I feel like that's what just happened just now. Uh, I you you know I just used what I knew of you in sort of this subconscious way, put it all together, and yeah. came up with the right answer. Yeah, I think that might be how I passed most of my tests in in grade school. Oh yeah, just the intuition. Into huh? it just completely. Yeah. Well. Yeah, you definitely you hit that one on the head. I you just like I said, Sherlock Holmes the shit out of well, that one. Now I need to know what what well, is Stu Hart's dungeon? It's it's a uh, like um. A wrestling training camp from back in the day, uh, where Stu Hart, or, you know, Stu Hart trained Bret Hart and Owen Hart and Chris Benoit, and I think Chris Jericho was in there. Like lots of great, great wrestlers. And it was called the Dungeon, Stu Hart's Dungeon. Yeah, yeah, and I assume that was in Canada, someplace. Uh, I think Calgary, Alberta, but yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. That sounds like Canada. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Calgary, Alberta. All right, man. So it's been a, a been a week since you and I got the chance to hang out. So how are things? What's what's new, man? Oh, you know, not much. Uh, you wrapping up vacation, so uh, I haven't really been paying attention to the news and stuff that, like that as much. You know, yeah. so I've been out of it a little bit. Normally, I, you know, I'll get get a little bored at work, uh, you know, on my lunch breaks or something. And I'll kind of scroll through, but I've been at home. I've been relaxing. Mm. I've been painting my bedroom. Oh. Um, so not not 100% up to date with the news, which is going to make this week's episode, this surprise episode, a little interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's funny because I, um, I haven't. I haven't been on Facebook in over a month. Mm-hmm. I just decided I'd, I, that I was done giving revenue to Fuck uh, Facebook. income re- or uh, advertising revenue to Facebook. Um, and, I, and all my other social media stuff's pretty much, it hasn't been my favorite. So I've not done a lot of that, but that's where I was getting most of my news. So right now, anytime something happens that's noteworthy, I'll hear it from my wife. So she'll tell me, and that's what she did with this. I have a Rand, another Rand Paul quote I want to talk about because he had an awesome little clip. Um, that we'll talk about. I'll save it for a little bit later. But she sent that to me, so she's keeping me abreast of anything that's funny or worth worth a while. Got it. it th- this is a funny story with Rand Paul. Oh, I think so. Okay. I mean, it's gonna be um, it's gonna be interesting tiptoeing around it because it it has to do with the transgender topic, and I'm a little bit less willing th- than you to just kind of <laughs> be, be blunt about it. But we're gonna we're gonna have that little exercise in a minute. That's hilarious. Well. I'll try. I'll try to just like beat a path for you, you know, so you feel comfortable. That's funny. So, um, how are things with uh, with you and the fiance? Uh, pretty good, you know. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I feel. I feel weird getting personal on the podcast. I just put you on the spot. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I thought maybe it was missing is people getting to know us a little bit better. So I'm putting you on the spot, and also, um, Paul, uh, my wife's uncle, asked the other day. Um, 
whether you guys were living together officially, and I didn't know how to answer that question. We are. We are indeed. Ooh. That's about all I'm going to say, though. I don't know. I, fe- I haven't talked to her about talking to her on the podcast. Okay. Stuff okay. like that, so... Well, that's fair. I'll respect that. But I do think that we can talk about other personal stuff. (laughs) It doesn't involve other people. But, you know, Um, I I do think I'm going to bring my wife on the podcast, even if just for uh, a little bit, just to just to get her um, exposed to it. And I think the audience would appreciate it. I did. I'll tell you this. I did uh, kind of float the same idea by um, future Mrs. Kyle. Ah. And she uh, she was not interested. She does not want to come on. No. So. Is she concerned about just being on the on in the hot seat? I think that it's more like like what am I gonna say? You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So But the only way she's gonna get over that is to do it and see sure. that it's not the end of the world. Yeah, well, you know, we're not all podcasters at heart. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of the uh, the solo episodes, um, I uh, just wanted to tell, I don't know if I've gotten a chance really to talk to you about yours. I really enjoyed yours, and I'm looking forward to the next oh, one. Oh, good. That's coming out next Wednesday? Yes, sir. That's cool. So I did, I already recorded, but it kind of seems to me like if we if we release them uh, in regular intervals that people will have more to listen to. I don't want to put too much out all at once. and yeah, then flood people. You know, people skip over episodes and sure. all that. Sure, It is a little weird. I mean, I know you did one, your solo podcast, by the way, uh, I really loved, and I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't on it. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that, first of all, I have a tendency of stopping you when you get going because I want to ask questions or something. And I didn't do that this time, and it, it, it paid off. Like, I thought it was effective. Um, and there's cool. also, like, one or two instances where I was like, oh, I don't know if I, if I would have said it that way, or <laughs> I'm not sure I would have went right there. So I'm glad I wasn't there holding you back yeah. because, first of all, it was super interesting the way that you structured your whole monologue off of... Uh, off of Rhett's um, story and that you incorporated that. Like, I had never heard of that guy. Never, sure. Never listened to the podcast. Um, but I would consider it now. And, and even though that wasn't complimentary of Rhett in, in any in any way. I tried to keep it as nice as possible. It was but, fair. Yeah. It was fair. But now I'm curious. So that he may get more listeners, um, at least for me, uh, as a result of that. Oh, I, I, I said in the podcast, I actually kind of like Rhett and Link. I used to like them a lot more. Um, but, and it's not even really connected with the, the, the podcast thing. I just like kind of, you know, you go, you grow into things, you grow out of them. Yeah. Um, and Good Mythical Morning, it it is entertaining. It's just like, kind of, like I said, in that thing, mindless entertainment. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, if, if other people start listening, then, you know, that's fine. I'm not like, yeah, good for him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not, I have no like anger. I just think that, uh, he's coming from a place of. It seems dishonest to me. I'll just say that's why, like I said, I'm trying to be as nice as possible. But basically, I am saying that he's being I think he's being duplicitous on Mm. some level. So, well, you know, you know what I appreciate about you, man, as as a friend. um, And I don't know that I have a whole lot of other people in my life like this, but that you're always willing to call me on my shit as a friend in a good in a good natured, well meaning way. If I say something that is bullshit uh, or if I say something that I'm not 100% sure about, you, ca- you you pick up on that instantly and you call me out on it. Sure. And, and that's what you did to Red. And even though you guys are strangers, yeah. uh, I think that type of criticism is super valuable for him. And, I, you know, if he ever happens to hear that, I, ho- I yeah. hope he takes that to heart. Yeah, I, I, I thought about because, you know, I've been like tweeting at him and people all week trying to see if maybe I can get someone to listen, try to get some kind of a response. But um, I feel like 
The only thing that he could really come back at me and say is, you're a racist. And, and that's what he would say, like, I'm who, sure. Who cares? I just don't fucking care. Yeah. You know, you, um, that, that's, that's the only line you've got. I'm not really worried about that one anymore. Yep. You know, maybe like 10 years ago, that was like a really scary thing to get called. But Isn't that funny? It's like uh, the, the, the boy who cried wolf. It's that sort of mm-hmm. scenario where now pe- people are being called racist so much that it's losing some of its, some of its power now. Yeah. Um, and that's a, you know, kind of a, a way to transition into the, one of the things that we are talking about. The, I don't think that racism is a big deal really in this country on any level, mm-hmm. okay? I don't think that it's a problem for any particular race. Right. I, I will say that the only institutional racism I see, and I said this in that podcast, is affirmative action. That yep. is a clearly race-based policy that does not benefit white people. Oh, yeah. Okay? Um, and so that's the only institutional racism I see. Now, another way that I see racism in the United States, and mind you, again, I just said that I don't really think the racism is, racism is that big of a problem. Mm-hmm. But culturally, you see racism as very, very acceptable against white people. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not even called racism in there. It's, yeah, it's not. A, yeah, you're not allowed to call it racism. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, I, I don't want to necessarily make this connection exactly, but you, would, it would be more true to call it what? Well, the word they're using now is equity. It would be more true to call it equity than racism because it's happening against a group that's perceived as being the one in power or the one controlling most of the resources or something like that. I don't. I don't really understand it, man. It's. Yeah. Well, I just don't understand it because, I mean, on some level, I kind of understand that yes some people have more influence than others some people have more power than others but if there's a white kid playing in his front yard and some black guy goes up and shoots him in the head Mm -hmm. dead just because uh is that racism i mean you know i don't know i think that that's (laughs) yeah i think that is because what's funny you're executing individual power it's not like systemic power it is See, I, see, it's funny, man, because I see your point. Like, assuming that that, that hypothetical example it's was... It's not a hypothetical example. Well, it's you're a right. real thing. You're right. You're right. But let's just assume, uh, for the purposes of argument, we're talking about a make-believe scenario. In that scenario, assuming that the shooter was was racially motivated, and that was the, that was the honest reason sure, that yeah, that it happened... it could be other things, yeah. I still wouldn't call it racism. And the, yeah. and, the, and the reason, and, and you probably know what I'm going to say, mm-hmm. I would say that that person is almost certainly mentally ill or, or was uh, convinced by uh, enough anger and enough kind of irration, irrational kind of emotion to act against his, um, against his conscience. Sure. That that is an individual decision of an individual person. It's not racism. It's not some free-floating phenomenon that that sort of you know is like a cloud hanging over people that just sort of atta- you know uh, uh, you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
<laughs> permeates. <laughs> That's the word. Okay. Yeah. So, and this is sort of the the way that it it seems to me like when people talk about racism, as though there's this thing that there's this concept called racism that exists in the world. That it's not something that exists in the in the hearts and minds of individuals, but that it's this sort of ethereal cloud that sort of you know comes down in the yeah. city and it possesses individual people and makes them yeah. act and wait. That's how it's this magical fucking thing. One thing that I think, it, it, the way you're describing it there and a way that is, um, you know, relevant at the moment, I do feel like people on the left kind of um, talk about, what am I trying to say here? They talk about ra- racism like it's a virus, like you're right. going to spread it. Right, Yeah, um, which, I don't know, it seems like nonsense to I mean, I you know, I know... One of my favorite Dan Carlinisms is the the whole intellectual contagion thing, mm. and ideas do kind of spread similarly to viruses. So that's true. Uh, but uh, just kind of going back to the thing that I was saying earlier, I don't believe that racism is a big problem in the United States. Just my own lived experience, it doesn't seem like anything is really that bad. Um, I'm not saying that there's. I'm not saying that certain groups don't face adversities that other groups don't, but I mean, on some level, that's life, and you're never going to flatten out all of those those yeah. difficult circumstances. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I look at those things, um, the way that uh, the way that the media, like for instance, portrays the plight of minority groups, mm-hmm. and you know, they're largely talking about uh, the black and Hispanic community, is that they talk about those. Um, they t- uh, I'm losing my train of thought again. Well, I guess the point I really want to get to is I feel like I, I'm picking on the left a little bit more yeah. than the conservatives. Sure. And I don't want the audience to get the, the, the feeling that that's, you know, that it's reflective of some kind of conservative leaning on my part. Although, I, I, you know, as a libertarian, I do have some of that. Um, the reason I, that you and I are focusing so much on it is because right now the aggressors are the left-leaning folks sure um it's 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 to me it seems like the balance is off kilter Mm -hmm. and i'm one of those guys like if i'm watch you know like a like a football game if if it's not my team if i'm watching it just for fun i'm rooting for the underdog sure you know that's just my nature i want to see something surprising and so whenever i see something like this where you know the balance between left and right is way off kilter if it's the right that's taking the advantage i'm going to be I'm going to be slamming the right. Yeah. If it's the left taking the advantage, I'm going to be slamming the left because I want to. I want there to be more of a balance. And right now, the left has taken such an advantage that the conservative impulses that we all have in, in our in our psychology and in our culture, uh, that that stuff is is dangerously low. And you know, and I think that's dangerous for the society. I think that when that happens too much, um, eventually there's there's a dramatic. Um, um, you know, uh, there's a dramatic reaction. It's like the stock market. Whenever, whenever you see, um, you know, uh, emotion driving the stock market way down or mm-hmm. way up, whenever that happens, it's like an overreaction. There's always a, a overreaction on the other side to make up for it. Yeah, and correction. I'm, I'm kind of afraid of that from the social perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's something that I've been thinking about for quite a while now. Um, and, you know, you just wonder, like, what does that look like, you know? What does that snapback look like? It's a great question. And, and 
So this makes me think of Jordan Peterson, where he's talking. Uh, he was talking about um, people who find themselves in uh, in a in a, ca- in a in a state of chaos. When like the example he uses is suppose you're, you know, you've had a a very uh, sound, secure job mm-hmm. all these years and had no idea that your job was in jeopardy. And one day you get called into the boss's office and you've been fired. And it's a com- complete surprise that in that moment you fall into the state of chaos where everything's topsy-turvy, all the things you thought were foundational are, are you know, quicksand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, 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 to me, that's the same situation we're in socially, that we have this... We have this excess of chaos, um, and the li- the liberals bring that side to the table, and it's it's an important, it's necessary. Sure, if that's where new ideas come from, that that the left is supposed to be the party that's pushing back against tradition when when uh, having like a reluctance to change is holding us back. Yeah, um, you know when we what we were initially going to do today, one of the things that we kind of had the, on the list was to talk about. You know, we were going to have someone in here. We were going to be talking to them about where they kind of fall on that left-right spectrum. Yes. Um, you know. Uh, well, you know, before you continue, I just want to clarify that by saying this was intended to be our first episode with a guest. Sure. We had a great guest lined up, and we're going to have to postpone that episode. So keep going, Kyle. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. Um, but that's kind of something I'm going to touch on now because when you're talking about being more critical of the left. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I use the terms the left synonymous with Democrats. And right. that's a big mistake because there are a lot of people who are very far left who hate the Democrats. Mm. Okay. Yep. Um, so that's something to consider. But can I ask you who you have, who you have in mind when you say that you don't know, you don't know people like Jimmy Dore. He, he's been on Rogan a few times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, like, I know that there are other parties, like the Green Party or mm-hmm. something, that's going to fall even further left than the Democrats. Um, is that what you have in mind? Is that what you're yeah. thinking? Okay, yeah. I see. And uh, I mean, you know, there are people who like think the left doesn't go far so, enough. Like, you think about somebody who, like, my mom, okay, yep. who is a Trump person. Yep. All right, big time Trump person. Um, that type of Trump person is like, well, they're all pushing for co- Joe Biden's pushing for communism. Um, no, I'm sorry. Joe Biden is not pushing for communism. Joe Biden is definitely pushing for more state control. But the guy who the guy who is the bank's man, you know, mm-hmm. the guy who gets millions of dollars from banks, that guy's not pushing for communism. OK, that's why they had to get Biden in over top of Bernie because they don't want that kind oh, of no. stuff. Oh, no. Okay? No, no, um, So I, my point is that the, the entire left-right spectrum is just completely broken in the United States. Left and right, as far as the two political parties, mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. Well, you're right. Okay? Now, it, it begins to take on a little bit more meaning when you start talking about people. You know, again, like you were talking about before, individuals and not groups. Right. Um... You know, so it's hard to talk about left and right, you know. Now, when you, when you say that, do you mean, and this is what I take you to mean, that, you know, over the last, you know, 50, 60 years, the both parties, um, the Democrats and Republicans, have become more big government, more progressive, so that what, we're ha- what we have now is the choice between big government A and big government B. Absolutely. And they're not really conservative versus liberal anymore. Yeah, they're not. They're they're. Massive state parties, you know, that uh, they're going to allocate tax money one way or the other. 
you know? Yep. So it, there's not much of a difference. And a lot of the stuff, the issues, there's not even that much difference. Um, you know, it, it, the, the stuff that there's disagreement on, it's like basically just public disagreement and it's stuff that doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, I know that social issues matter to the social groups that they affect, but I mean, for the most part, how much of an effect is the transgender bathroom issue having on your life, you know? Yeah, not very, much. No, no, not much. But, but it, the other stuff that they do, that has a lot of influence. And that's not stuff that gets talked about. It's it's all these these issues that keep, get people all worked up. Yeah, so. of course, of course. Yeah, no, no, that's 100% true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it does seem like when we're fighting um, publicly, like in the, in the media, mm-hmm. the things we're arguing about... First of all, it doesn't seem obvious to me that it's our, it's our choice what it is we're we're having a conversation about. It seems like that's coming from some, somebody else. Mm-hmm. But we all kind of agree, we jump on board, and we're having this conversation. Um, but you, uh, you know, and I don't want to change topics too quickly, but I can't stop thinking about the COVID relief bill that they're trying to pass. Yeah, I don't even know much about it. You're going to have to fill me in. Well, I mean, and, and I haven't dug deep into it either. But what I did hear is it's 1.9 trillion dollars. Okay. And only 4%, 4% of that is going for COVID relief. Now, the bill is specifically the COVID, the COVID relief, relief bill. bill. Yep. 4% is going to COVID relief. I can't wait to see how much money. I can't wait to see what money we're sending where, you know? Well, there's definitely a bunch going overseas, but there's also a bunch going to, and I'm, I'm getting this from a, a very conservative person, so I'm going to put it the way they put it, but a bunch of the money is going to bail out states that have been managing their money irresponsibly. So California is going to get a bunch mm-hmm. of money. So, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, Boston, <laughs> Boston's going to get a bunch of money, whatever it is. Yeah. So it's these states that have, have Democratic leadership that have made a bunch of poor decisions. They're now going to get bailed out under the auspices of this kind of good-natured, critical, you know, pandemic relief bill. Yeah. All packaged up in there. Fuck that. Fuck that. Not a fan. Um, you know, I, I guess I guess that's better than sending money to Israel. I, you know, I if I'm weighing the options, I guess sending it to California is better than sending it to Israel. But... And I that, still don't like it. So that and that is not an anti uh, an anti Zionist sort of comment. Yeah, that it is. <laughs> well, the perspective the perspective it's, it's not it's not anti Jewish person, but yeah, no, I'm not a Zionist. Definitely not. Yeah, I I feel like where you're coming from here is if we're spending tax dollars, especially money we don't have that we're printing or borrowing or whatever it is, that that money should be for uh, Americans and, should, yeah. and shouldn't be leaving our borders. I mean, you know that I – the way that I feel is that we shouldn't be doing that period. But I think if we're going to do it, I think we should be using it to take care of our people, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I'm – you know, I have – I don't know. I have like complicated thoughts on saying things like our people, because what does that even mean? You know? Um, yeah, but still it's being collected from this group. I feel like this group should benefit from it. If they have to have it stolen from them, they should benefit from it. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that's right. I mean, groups are arbitrary to some extent, especially when we're talking about, you know, groups that are defined by not us, but by the, by the government. Voluntary groups are great. Right. Right. Um, so let me ask you this question. Um, this is topical also. Uh, I was reading an article that said um, B- Biden was publicly stating um, that, 
that ICE would not be patrolling or otherwise enforcing um, immigration law um, on the site of vaccination clinics or, or, or whatever, whatever word Got you want to use for that. So, so you just roll up there and don't worry about it. So exactly. So Biden, so Biden makes a public statement, meaning he wants everyone to know that I'm specifically calling off the dogs that mm-hmm. when, when we're setting up these, these, uh, you know, vaccine locations and we want to get everyone vaccinated, that we're not going to make any distinction between legal and illegal. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be busting you there. Um, so, I mean, like anybody else, I completely understand the spirit of what he's saying. Sure. He's, he's saying that it doesn't matter what color skin you have or where you come from. Um, this is a global problem. Uh, we we want to protect people. And if you're here in our country and a danger to spread it around, we want to make sure that, that you get the same treatment everybody else does. Um, I also see the other side of the coin, that you have people here who are here illegally that may be getting a dose over somebody here who's here legally. That doesn't seem fair either. What are your thoughts on that? I think that the vaccine is largely... Okay, so let's say that the vaccine is super, super, super effective, okay? How do you measure that? The death toll falls from 97 to 99.8%. You know, like, what are we measuring as successful in this? I mean, I just don't understand the clamor for the vaccine. Um, I think that on some level, what they're trying to do is... (laughs) <laughs> and this is kind of something I touched on in that that solo podcast I did. Minorities don't really trust the government either, okay? Um, they have their own reasons to not trust the government. Right. And so the government is just like trying to open their arms, trying to be welcoming to them. Like, right. you can trust. It's fine. Come on. Come on and get this vaccine that you don't really need. Um and I really think that that does all that kind of boils down to is like why they're pushing the vaccine so hard right. is that they can so they can be like, we vaccinated this many people. It's oh, like yeah. a, a benchmark of success for a problem that is not existent. Oh, yeah. It's just like in Congress, like the, the, the measure of of Congress's success is what they've been able to accomplish. So they're going to pass laws or try to pass laws, even if we don't need them, yeah. because if they don't, then they're seeing as a do nothing Congress. Yeah. They have to be doing something. Justin Amash, you know, Justin Amash, yeah, I do know Justin. Amash. Uh, he, you know, former Congressman from Michigan, he was on Michael Malice's podcast this past week. And he said that congressmen don't do anything. It's like all raising money and like, they don't, they don't amend um, they don't amend bills. They don't do, it's all top down. It gets handed down to them. They vote on it. It's, wow. Yeah. So it's interesting. Man, our founding fathers be rolling over in their graves. Representative democracy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I want to ask you about something because, um, you know, without getting too specific, um, I'll just say this. I'm aware of a uh, at least one instance of a Fortune 500 company. So I have to imagine that this is true for lots of Fortune 500 companies. But I'm aware with one specific specific company in particular, US-based Fortune 500 company. Um, their training uh, protocol <clears throat> for um, 2021 uh, that's been sort of released down to, to their employees included an enormous focus on... Um, Diversity, mm. equity, and inclusion. Equity. 
and and that that specifically. Now that word was never defined explicitly. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it where that word wasn't used a year ago. It's 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 sort of a new phenomenon that 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 you know we're trying we're we're going to bring this word up. Can I ask you something yeah, about absolutely. that word? Absolutely. Go ahead. I mean, equity is like a finance term, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So. Um, you can think about that like I have equity on in my home, so I, I have my home's worth more than my mortgage. So I have equity, but but you can also think of that as um, like in a divorce situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the attorneys will use the word like an equ- an equitable distribution of assets. Oh, okay. And what they mean in that context is that uh, the spouse uh, or one of the spouses is being awarded enough of the joint assets of the of the married couple. Uh, to make up for their contribution to the time they spend in that marriage, um, and that can that can be disproportionate. So you you might see a a wife or a husband under under certain circumstances getting more of marital assets than the other. Sure, and that's considered fair. But that word isn't used in this case. It's equitable. Yeah. Okay. So what we're talking about here is being rewarded in proportion to your need somehow. Gotcha. And I can't help but say that. Without sounding like Carl fucking Marx. From each according to their need. To each according to, yeah, to each according to their need, from each according is. to his ability. Exactly. That <laughs> That's what equity means. And that is a, a word already in common law with a, with a very concrete legal definition, just as I explained it to you. Yeah, okay. But they're pushing it in this, this Fortune 500 company, they're pushing it a little bit more vaguely in the context of well, racial... Racial justice type stuff. One hundred percent. Okay. One hundred percent. So you have, you have a again a U.S. based Fortune five hundred company, whose whose CEO says um, to its employees that that they're going to have a focus on equity, that if their employee and, and again, this is going to make some of some of you uncomfortable. That is a verbatim quote, and that's fine. Unquote. Ooh. So what, so what we have here is um, we have very much top down. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the media and the government setting this equity, uh, this, this, this equity kind of goal. Uh, and this is right from Biden and, and Harris. I'm seeing that now affecting the um, highest level corporate um, rulers, let's say, who are very much tied to uh, these these political parties from campaign contributions and regulation insight and all all sorts of things that tie the c- corporate world to the government. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is this what I'm going to call indoctrination trickling down from the government, the federal government, through the media, now down into the corporate world to to be imposed on its employees. And it's not again to go back to the quote he said this will make some people uncomfortable and that's fine. Where is that quote from? That quote is from the CEO of this particular organization. In, in, okay, okay. Um, now, when he says this is going to make some of you d- uncomfortable, he's talking about like white people. Well, he was talking to he was talking to all of their employees. Okay. So he meant some of your, some of the, these employees are going to disagree with this. Okay. And that's okay. We're doing it anyway. Got it. Now this is in the this is in the same uh, breath as talking about inclusion. Yeah. Right. So, so we're we're gonna make sure we're in, we're including everyone. We're taking everyone's opinions into consideration. We're benefiting from all the different angles that cultural diversity allows, except for the people who disagree. Because yeah. The people who are <laughs> the people who are uncomfortable. We're not gonna include them. Yeah. That's um. 
you know, I've seen that not necessarily in Fortune 500 companies, uh-huh. uh, but I've seen that attitude just kind of permeating through our culture, period. Just like even on a friendship level. Mm. Like, you know, you you got some friends and they're liberal. You know, they're more towards the left, the mm-hmm. left side of things. And, uh, you know, like that podcast with Rhett, like you said, you said there was some stuff you're like, I might not have said it that way. Right. Well, that's just how I talk. OK, yeah. I'm not really interested in, you know, like censoring myself to gain fav- favor with people. I just don't care. I appreciate that about you. Um. So. You know, it's like they start talking about politics, these more liberal friends, um, and then, you know, it's – I try to keep my mouth shut, but then it's like why why, why is Kyle being conspicuously quiet? He's just not saying anything. Mm. So eventually they start digging a little bit. And like I said, I'm not I'm not going to lie. I, I mean if you, if you ask me, I'm probably going to tell you, um, especially if it's like – you know, I, I don't talk about politics with people at work or anything like that. Right. But, And then, I mean, it's like a common thing. Like if you don't, and this is another thing I kind of touched on, on that, that solo episode. If you don't think everything that we lay out here for you to think, you're not allowed to be a part of the club. You're exiled. You're a bad person. You're a Nazi. You're a fascist. You're a racist. You're a sexist. You're a bigot. Yeah. You know, dude, one of my, one of my favorite parts of that solo podcast you did was it was it was just really well done man it it was when you were you were talking about um how the media emphasizes uh the police deaths when it's a white cop killing a a black uh um person mm-hmm. and you rattled off names and names that we all know and you were very like um you, you know you you were like your cadence was slow enough that you were just like making your point with each name mm-hmm. and you didn't come right out and say it. But then when you transitioned from all of those names that we all know, the Trayvon Martins and, and, and all that, you, you switched over to, to, uh, other people who died in similar circumstances that weren't, uh, black or, or, or a person of color. Um, and, and even more horrific situations. And you, and you specifically described one of them, which I hadn't heard, by the way, it was fucking disgusting. Yeah. The Michael um, Bell Jr. Oh God. Yeah. It's awful. But, uh, but you, you did that and, and you just sort of let, let, let it, um, left it there for the listener to make up their own uh, mind. Have you heard of these? Yeah. And, and if you haven't, can you ask yourself why? Yeah. Dude, that was awesome, man. I thought that was super powerful. Thanks man. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that this pumping up of those crimes in the media is, like we were talking about before, just people get worked up by those issues for some reason. I don't know. That's something that I would like to look into. Like, why do people, why are we so sensitive to those issues? What is that? So those, that's a good question. So those specific issues, they, they seem to be the ones that that make us um, that put us in different camps. Uh, so I think there's something about that that we like that we want. Like, I'm, and I'm thinking about this in perspective of like a sports team. You know, we want to have a side. We want to feel like we belong sure. to something greater than ourselves. So there's always like this impulse that seems to be like favorable of that. Um, but but in that but in that specific instance, it's it's not. Um, you know. I don't know, man. Uh, I do think that there's that there's a, a part of us that likes that, and and a part of us that immediately, sure, uh, re, you know, is repulsed by that. Repulsed by it too. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's like um, 
uh, just the other day, uh, my, my wife and I were listening to an old an old punk rock song mm-hmm. by No Effects called uh, "Don't Call Me White." Oh yeah, okay. And it, and it came out like in the what it was probably like the early '90s, and you know that's not something that you'll hear anybody talk about today, at least not that directly. But the idea that uh, every medical form I've ever filled out, every government application I've ever filled out, I've had to indicate what my race is, and uh, and and it's either white or or black so and there's uh, increasingly more options now but even for even for me it's either white or if i'm black it's black taking in taking into consideration nothing about the diversity of white people or black people um i feel like that i don't know if that's intentional but the consequence of that is is uh making us feel like we're we're in these two different groups we're on these two different teams and uh, something about that seems natural, mm-hmm. like we want to be on teams, and there's reasons we want to be on teams. Yeah. Uh, but the consequence of that is it puts us immediate, immediately at odds with yeah. the other team. Yeah, yeah. It's like in the same kind of whatever the same psychological operation is up there that makes it's like you're instantaneously gaining an enemy and an ally at the same time. And we seem to want that. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe and maybe going back to like you know prehistory that was an important advantage. Like I, I was gonna survive better if I had other people who, who were like me or accepted me as part of th- that group that would help me to survive you know, the elements or something. So that, that maybe goes back to like an evolutionary thing way back in the beginning, you know, beginning early parts of co- you know, human history. Sure. And, and so, so maybe there, there's clearly an advantage to having an in-group, to being part of a group. Mm-hmm. You have advantages to that. That seems to be why we like it. Yeah, um, but it also seems to me like you know. Remember when we were talking about um, having some sci- kind of a psychological need to have something to struggle against? Yeah, yeah. So like 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 the the, the Nietzsche quote or the, the the Dostoevsky quote that if we don't um, if we don't have something to struggle against that that that's like the worst possible situation for our for our psyche. Mm-hmm. That being part of a group. Um, you know, gives us something to struggle against. It gives us the other group that becomes our instant enemy that that's kind of satisfies some kind of need we have. Okay. Yeah. It's funny because you kind of touched on it there. My next question was going to be, I understand very obviously the, you know, the evolutionary benefit of collectivism, you know, what I don't, what I was trying to figure out is what is the biological evolutionary advantage to having an enemy Mm. but you know i can see that i mean you know like you think about this kind of reminds me of the old standby that we talk about all the time jordan peterson um it does it kind of ties back into that you need a goal Mm. and and an enemy you know it's probably not the best goal in the world, but when you're a primitive, you know, it serves, you know? No, absolutely. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, so that reminds me of, um, uh, do you, did you ever read uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. It's, it's slipping my mind, but he was a uh, concentration camp survivor. Oh, okay. And he wrote that book about it. It's just a, just a, just an awful book. I mean, it's a great book, but you know the the the, the topics are just just really heavy. Heart wrenching. Really yeah. heavy. But one of the things he says in it is um, that that if you have a a why, that it'll it'll allow you to overcome any how. Oh yeah. So like you know the people who survived the con- concentration camps are the people that had a reason. 
that was strong enough for them sure. to overcome even the most terrible tortures and treatment. Yep. And if we don't have that, uh, having some sort of an enemy is a good substitute for that. Yeah. And I'm just picturing like, you know, somebody who's young and naive, like I was when I graduated high school, and you know, and my buddy Brian talking about joining the military and getting me all how hyped up about that. Yeah. Like even considering that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me that that you know that falls into the same ballpark. That does fall into the same bar, ballpark, and I think that it, like, the explanation is even kind of similar. Maybe. I don't know. But I think that a lot of males, I think that they do just have this innate, like, desire to be a commando, you mm. know, to be, like, a, a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger, you know? A hero. To be a, yeah, exactly. A specialist, uh, you know. Um, I think that's cool as hell, you know? Well, and I'm, like, a pretty big... I mean, I mean, a huge anti-war advocate. I'm very anti-war, but still, something deep in me would be like, man, it'd be fucking great to just, you know, that'd be fun. It'd no, be cool. No, I agree with you, you know, and that, you know, there's nothing different about that than, you know, thinking about people who like superhero movies. It's like you're putting yourself in this, you're putting, you're imagining True. yourself in this situation where you're a hero. Yeah, one of them's just pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, you know, I like the superhero movies, but... So, no, I, I think that's important because I do think that uh, people in general have some sort of psychological need to be to be heroic. Yeah. And, and maybe that's more true for men than women, although I think it's probably just different. And I'm, yeah. I just, as a man, I kind of see it from the perspective of This of is a how man. a man is a hero. This is how a man is a hero. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. Yep. That's interesting stuff. I like that. Um, that kind of makes me think of, you know, that dude Jocko Willink. Mm. That like that's I love listening to that podcast. Oh yeah, you know, and it's because I get to kind of vicariously live out what it would be like to be a, a, a Navy SEAL or whoever, whatever crazy oh, person yeah. he's talking to. Oh yeah, and oh, there's yeah. great insight to be learned. From, okay, I am. I have. You know, I say this all the time. I have a complicated relationship with things. The military is one of those things yep. because I'm very anti-intervention. I'm very anti-war. Um, but I do think that the military is badass, and I think that the the men and women who join the military, while I think that they're being misled by evil people, mm-hmm. I think that they are doing it for heroic reasons. Oh yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, we we need some kind of a challenge, and I can't imagine, especially as a young person with uh, you know that's that's still naive and hasn't had a lot a lot of life experience, to imagine just something like like boot camp or something to be that to be that that a lowering sort of struggle that you want to test yourself against. Like I remember when I was a kid, um, I remember thinking like, I wonder if I could just go and live with the Amish. (laughs) (laughs) The Amish. I want to, I want to go for like a week. Like I couldn't be there for more than a week. You don't think so? I mean, I may, maybe, but at that time I was thinking, could I hack it? Could I, could I get up at four o'clock in the morning, every morning, work hard every day, you know, come home and appreciate my, my slop dinner. Yeah. You know, like, you know, something about that challenge was so alluring to me. Would you shave the mustache off to go live with the Amish for a week? Yes. I bet your mustache grows back pretty quick. I've only shaved my mustache twice in my life. Really? Yeah. 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 So my mustache is super soft. My beard, my beard is all, you know, curly and rough, but my mustache is just, just <laughs> pristine. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think about that kind of stuff still. I mean, I still have this great desire to, and I mean, 
it's a great desire that at this point I really don't think I'm gonna I don't think I'm gonna have much satisfaction on it. But to um, go live off the land, you oh, know, yeah. like that life below zero, like up there in the Arctic Circle. Oh yeah. You know, like that hard might be a bit much for me, honestly. But like, um, yeah, that kind of stuff does call out to me, man. I, I, yeah, I think I think people. I don't know if this is just men or not, but people feel like uh, to be self-sufficient, to be able to be to take care of yourself without society, to mm-hmm. be to be that level of like secure. There's nothing more manly. There's, there's nothing more. Um, I don't know what word I'm searching for here, but th- but that's just something very desirable about that. I think that you're uh, you're hitting on something with it being more, you know, male centric. Like there's just something about it, the like surviving in nature thing. Just I I know a lot of guys who that that you know oh yeah calls out to. But another thing that I think I think that getting away from all of modern society uh, at least checking out as much as i possibly can mm-hmm. um i think it makes you more human too i really do it not just male or female i think it i think we should all kind of check out a little bit oh yeah i really do yeah do you do you remember um there was a guy that was on rogan uh he was a um uh, uh it was a physicist his name was amir goswami oh yeah Remember Amir Goswami? Yep. yep. First of all, I love I love that guy. He's awesome. Yeah. But when he was on Rogan, he wasn't as awesome. Doobie doobie doo. That's that what guy? I wanted to bring up. Uh, okay. That's oh, what nice. I wanted to bring up. So so but so that's what he said. He said that in order for you to live a sort of healthy life and for your uh, for you to be able to like translate the things that are unconscious uh, into something that's meaningful to you, you have to have time to you have to do you have to do something you know you have to you have to be involved in the world you have to be struggling in the world trying to learn something trying to do something but then you have to be and what he meant by that was you have to have a moment to reflect you have to have time when you're not doing something Mm -hmm. to reflect on it and kind of make sense of it so it's meaningful and productive for you yeah and that's what you're talking about you have to have time to be yeah um i do remember that guy on rogan and I remember he was eating a Subway sandwich during it. That was pretty entertaining. I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> um, that guy, that was like early Rogan. Uh, maybe not early, but that was like yeah. kind of early Rogan. It was pretty early. So I, there was a documentary that that guy did. It, it was called The Self-Aware Universe. Yeah. And he wrote a book by the same name that I bought and haven't have it read. It's been sitting there for a very long time. I need to read it. Yeah. But that guy was awesome. He inspired my colorful tattoo. That oh no shit that guy that inspired that tattoo the two tongues logo the two tongues logo you got it we gotta got come it. up with a name for that guy um but yeah i don't i mean that tattoo is pretty sweet man we should uh <laughs> we should like incorporate that somehow you know oh yeah it's a good idea you got great you got two great tattoos thank that, you like man. meaningful tattoos you so, know as far, so as far as tattoos go i i I avoided the mistakes that so many people make with their tattoos uh-huh. is that I waited until I was 25 before I got my first tattoo. I didn't, I didn't get permission from my mom and dad and get one when I was 16. <laughs> I didn't do it like what my, what my brother did and get like a, you know, an unlicensed, ta- unlicensed tattoo artist to put some Asian characters on my arm or something like that, that yeah. I, that I regret for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. I waited until I had, until I had enough life experience to really know what was going to be meaningful to me for sure. longer than the summer. Yep. And then I also waited till I had enough money to do it right. Yeah. So anybody listening, thinking about getting a tattoo, take those two pieces of advice to heart. I promise you, you will like your tattoos more. That is very good advice. I mean, I have tattoos that I will 
I won't say that I regret having like the, the way that I put it is that if I was back in my body back then, I wouldn't get them now at this point. Period. But I, yeah, I yeah. just wouldn't get them. Um, you know, I've got the Veritas and the Equitas on my hands from Boondock Saints. Oh yeah, which I loved that movie when I saw it. Um, but now <laughs> I still love that movie on some level, but I, it's not the type of movie that I would have tattoos for. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but I w- one thing that helps with those is that it's Latin. So that's cool. Yeah. That's like kind of nerdy right up my alley. Truth and justice or truth and, you know, equity, uh, you know, which is funny yep. given the <laughs> podcast, but you know, uh, you know, that's cool. You know what? Since we talked about equity, let's bring it, let's bring it back up. So what what people generally mean by by equity um, is is something like fairness or equality, but you notice that equity and equality aren't the same word. No, they're different. Mm-hmm. So what is the difference exactly? And this is something that isn't talked about enough because it, the word sounds good, and just like anything coming out out of a politician's mouth, it's specifically designed to sound good, yeah. to be appealing to people, not to mean shit, not to mean shit. So there's no need for you to look into it because it's a straightforward word and it, and it has good feelings attached to it. Yeah. So if you're a kind person, you know, equality and equity all, all should all be something that you're on board about. But the truth is that what equity means is something like this, that if we're divvying up something, we have to do it fairly. And equally means there's only one definition of fair, and that means everybody gets the same. Equity, on the other hand, means that some people are that there's some, some people that need more fairness than others. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, you know, it's just like our system of taxes here, this progressive tax system, people who make more pay more. And that's something like what equity means, that somebody who needs more should get more, and that that is fair when, when, uh, you know, when equality isn't fair. And it, and it kind of makes sense to you if you imagine that you know, somebody who's very wealthy is going to get the stimulus check just like somebody who's poor. Yep. Uh, they shouldn't get that because they don't need it as much as, as somebody who's poor. So this is something that, when you explain it like that, makes, makes perfect sense. Um, but having that conversation for something like access to a job or uh, access to a government benefit, um, you know, that, then, then you know, the conversation gets in the weeds. It becomes very complicated that we should be giving more to some people and less to others and how do we make that that determination? How do we make that determination? That's a great question. Um, and I I don't think that there is a good way to do that. And I, I mean, I'm sure you, you know that I think that. Oh, I, I don't agree. Yeah, there's no good way to do that. There's no, you know, there's no like math formula that you're going to be able to plug numbers into and you're going to be able to figure out what everyone needs at any given moment. Um, yep, exactly. So, well, that's that's why communism uh, failed in in the Soviet Union because mm-hmm. because you can't take Karl's Mar- Karl Marx's words and translate that into anything practical. You're certainly not going to be able to do that in a way that everybody agrees on, and I don't think you can do that in a way that's not going to piss some people off so bad that they're willing to do something crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I just it's it's mind boggling to me that. that we're still going down that road. Like I just think about the deep, deep hooks that this kind of ideology must have, you know, that it's surprises me actually doesn't go away. You know, it's deeper than I ever thought. Yeah. And that the fact that you can take something with such a poor track record throughout history and 
argue against something with such a brilliant history mm. in you know you know a right. track record in history in capitalism. That's a great point. And it's like how is it still hanging around? Right. I mean, you you take an example like Hong Kong or something, an island that has no natural resources at all, and you turn that you turn that place from a third world country into a thriving wealthy um, first world country in next to no time more quickly than any Western country ever became that way. Mm -hmm. And, and you can lay that at the feet of free trade and capitalism 100%. Uh, and then you take a look at uh, the track record of communism in, in China and the Soviet Union and Cuba and places like that. Yeah. And you can see the countless deaths. You can see the torture and starvation of millions of people. Um, you can see the totalitarian government and uh, the freedoms taken away from people. You see the cost of that. Yeah. And what you're getting for that is failed totalitarian governments. And, with, you know, and the only reason that we, can, that we still have China floating around this, this, uh, this, you know, this arena is because they decided at some point that they needed to have some kind of a public-private thing yeah. that the government couldn't do at all. That's the thing. Um, and I think that this is, you know, we've kind of talked about, in, you know, what am I trying to say here? We've kind of talked about how maybe some things in history are intentionally suppressed or intentionally built up. Right. And I think that China's relationship with communism might be kind of suffering some kind of thing with that. Because you talk to, again, like a Trump person like my mom or, you know, any of these like boomer Trump people. Right. You ask them, they're like, what do you think about China? They're like, well, they're communists. Well, no, they're not really. They're a completely fucked up totalitarian government, but it's not really communism. Okay? Right. Exactly. And if you really start hammering out the historical details between the difference between Maoism and Stalinism and Leninism and Marxism, and they're all like varied philosophies, right. you know, um, and Maoism is probably granted, you know, I'm not an expert in any of these things, but I've done a little bit of research into it. And Maoism seemed to be like the most difference out of all of them. Right. So e even at the beginning it wasn't like the other communist states. And now it's a totalitarian, like capitalist amalgamation. It's like, yep. I mean, honestly, it's what America's becoming, it, you know, yeah, they, give, give America 50 years. And that's probably what we're going to look like. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. So couldn't agree with you more. And I think in more ways than just the economy, the, like the economic aspect of it too. I think that, well, it's, 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 to me, it, you're right. It's, it's way less to do with the economic aspect. When I think about communism, yeah. I think about the government being in control 100%. of production and the yep. economy. That's mm -hmm. a completely centralized economy. To me, that's what communism is. It has less to do with government and more to do with how the economy is run. Mm -hmm. um, where, where in China, you definitely have a centralized um, government, and they're definitely heavily involved with the economy. But they also allow a certain level of private property, uh, private business ownership. You know, uh, you know. They, so they're they're the only the only reason that they're around today and didn't go the way of the USSR is because they allowed that. Yep. So now what you end up with is a country that we're calling communist, but really it's a totalitarian dictatorship. Yeah. So now what we're calling communism to something to do with with our our economic system is really is really just another name for a dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got some serious problems on our hands with China. Um, but I don't really know what that's going to look like. Well, the, the point I'm making about that is that that's, that's no different than what we have in our country. Yeah. 
you know, we have a movement towards a dictatorship and we're, and we are, the conversation the people are having is the conversation about, um, you know, government involvement in the economy regulation, right? Regulation. Yeah. But, but really what that is, is, uh, transitioning to a, 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 a more, um, a more government controlled system. Yeah. I mean, when I think of the COVID response, okay, all the lockdowns and stuff like that, the only reason, you know, Mike DeWine here in Ohio, he comes out and he says all of these businesses have to be closed due to the COVID thing. That is only an issue because of things like licensure, you know, like like Mm. these businesses have to get a license from the government Mm. to do a particular type of business, a certain type of way. Right. Um, And if Mike DeWine says, hey, you have to close and they don't, they revoke that licensure. Mm. Uh, So. That kind of stuff, it's just like this creeping bureaucratic nightmare. Oh, yeah. You know? um, and I think, you know, this is kind of something that I was going to touch on a little bit in the the episode that we were going to do today. But I think that we should, we should be trying to find ways to opt out of that, to not do it. Uh, hmm. You know, and if that means getting some fines and shit like that and ignoring those. I think that I think it's getting to be time where we need to start, you know, working behind the scenes, you know, cutting, cutting the third, you know, cutting the middleman out, Mm. uh, you know, without his permission. Dude, that's a really interesting way of putting it. So, so thinking, cause we've been talking a lot about collectivism and, uh, and the government. So to think about the government as the middleman, Mm -hmm. so the government's supposed to be the people, um, well, if the people are the people, why do we need the government? Sure. That's an interesting way of putting it. It's like the people can do the things that the government does without there being a state, without there being a government. Yeah. In fact, that was true for most of American history. Yeah. You know, the hospitals, the uh, insane asylums, as they were called back then, um, you know, the all the charitable groups, the the uh, the place where the, um, you know, where, where the, uh, the 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 uh, homeless were kept, the place where the um, the children who, who you know, who, who, whose parents died, you know, the church and the ch- private charities did all of that. Yeah. Without the government, they just simply did all of that. Yeah. Now that now I don't know if the government was involved, you know, in the downfall of the church, but there seems to be a correlation between people's religious feelings and religious institutions kind of diminishing in this country, and the government coming in to fill the gap. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree with that. That's kind of been a theme since we started the podcast a little bit and ha- for me, anyways. Yeah, you know. how far does that go until the government becomes the religion? Yeah, I I really think that we're on the trail, you know, and not just starting down it either. I think we're, we're coming pretty far. God, it's so strange. Yeah. It's so strange, especially when the liberals, uh, you know, they, they have a, um, sort of an, an open attack on, on religion. And it comes from their perspective of conservative people being the religious ones for the most part, but we're, we're going to go ahead and crack down on, uh, religious, um, you know, uh, topics like, um, you know, it, it kind of began with, uh, abortion and, and gay marriage and things like that. We're, we're going to focus on, on those things, um, to keep us fighting with each other. Meanwhile, we're going to continue to take more and more of the position that the church once had. That's a weird thing, man. Yeah. And it does seem intentional. Oh yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I think that you had, you could have people, you know, back before it kind of started switching over to the state from the church, people who were involved in the state who were like, yeah, we got to get, 
get in on some of that. Look mm. at how look at how much the people just trust them mm. and you know don't question it because it's divine or whatever. Right. You know? So and, it's, and and now and now you've got a bunch of people who are up in arms about churches and charities not paying taxes that they should be paying taxes. Yeah, give me a fucking break. Now you know I don't know how I feel about that necessarily, but if I could rewind to a period in time when most of the schools, universities, and hospitals were all, you know, um, funded and operated by the church, that I can't imagine why we would want to tax those people. We should keep, we should, we want those things. We should, we should keep those tax benefits there for the nonprofits and the churches that are doing that good work. Yeah. But now, we're, now the government's doing all that. And, and so now we're going to turn around and tax them because what are they doing? What are they doing that's valuable to us? Yeah. Um, you know, that, I mean, there's not really a, I mean, that's, that's kind of a solid argument. Is it? Well, I mean, if the church isn't doing those things anymore um, and they're getting a bunch of money from their constituents, why shouldn't they be paying taxes on that? Well, for the same reason that, that nobody should be paying taxes. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's really the hey. fundamental, that's what it boils down to for me. Fair Fuck enough. Fuck you and your taxes. Um, I highly encourage people to find ways to get around paying taxes. Don't don't give these bastards any more money than mm. you have to, um, and just don't get in trouble. We'll just put it that yeah. way. Yeah, there's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. <laughs> or uh, evade, evade them. Just don't get caught evading them. Uh, hush, hush, <laughs> hush. So, hey, I want to ask you about this. Um, so there's somebody live, that lives in my household that is a, is a very big fan of Coca-Cola um, in the sense that, like, uh, like you know. you're going to say Coca something else. <laughs> no, 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 no. Co <laughs> cocaine? No. Um, so so uh, of, a fan of Coca-Cola in the, in the sense that, you know, uh, they like the memorabilia. They like the, the history of Coca-Cola like as a company aesthetic. and the culture, the aesthetic. Yeah. yeah the old, the old fifties diner aesthetic mm -hmm. the signs, the old bottles, that kind of thing. You know, and it's, it's collectible and you know, Coca-Cola is an American institution. You know, it's one of the earliest companies that became a fortune 500. Yep. It's an American company. Yep. Um, so in the news, not, not long ago, there was uh, quite the ruckus about some sort of a training um, that the Coca-Cola employees were, were going through. Um, and uh, one of the things that came from that was um, it was their racial sensitivity training. And one of the th one of the components of it was to, quote, be less white. Oh, oh, OK. What does that mean? That's <laughs> funny. It's funny. So I so this was it. I, I Googled this to, to l learn more about it. And Snopes popped up um, in one of the rumors was that they were planning on putting that on one of their cans. Oh. So, like, you know how Coke, Coke's does all the names on your cans so you can get your can? Got it. That they were going to put Be Less White on a can, which to me would be the last can of Coca-Cola I ever bought. Um, but, yeah. but that turns out not to be true. However, it absolutely did appear in the training protocol that that was done. It's not clear to me whether that was a Coca-Cola generated training or something that they brought in as a third party. Yeah. But they specifically did tell their employees to be less white. And by this, they actually bullet pointed what they meant by that. And so oh, God. I, what a, I didn't even I heard about this, but I didn't read it in depth. So I didn't know there were bullet points. Oh, let's hear this. Strap in, my friend. Let me find out if I, it's possible for me to be any less white. I'm not sure that it is. So first of all, I just want to I just want to ask the audience to think about this. Well, I'm going to read some of these bullet points. So 
they're asking their employees to be less white. And by this, this is what they mean. Be less oppressive. Be less arrogant. Be less divisive. These are the, th- these are the three top bullet points that they meant by be less white. White people are inherently divisive? Divisive and arrogant. <laughs> wow. That's, that's interesting. So, so not only, not only is, the, um, is the only way to understand that, uh, because it's, it's, it's in writing and straightforward, that, that whiteness somehow means that you're oppressive, that you have some, some you know, inherent uh, desire to oppress people. Um, that you're going to do it arrogantly because you believe that your your way is better than than the non-white ways, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and oh, excuse me, defensive, not divisive, defensive. Oh, defensive. So then we're going to protect. Then we're going to defend and protect that. Gotcha. And this is something that's specifically white and doesn't apply to any other any other race or or humanity in general. Yeah. Just white people. I've never I've never seen a black person on TV being defensive before. I've never <sighs> seen that ever. What in the absolute fuck is coca-cola thinking uh, what in the absolute fuck this is a day and age when everything gets on the internet and as soon as it does you can't get rid of it and and you know six billion people are going to know about it tomorrow yeah and you you guys decided that was okay to put in your training material be less white be less white i mean that's like kind of touching back on what we were talking about earlier um about ways in which actual racism shows up in our society and that is prime example of it that would not fly with any other community of people can can you imagine being um okay let's just imagine imagine that you're somebody who's not white and somebody says something like this to you imagine can you imagine saying that with the word brown in there not not only not only because that's not acceptable you know in this day and age, but to imagine that anybody whose whose skin pigment happens to be at a certain range, that somehow that makes you guilty of of a whole class of sins just because of just because of the shade of your skin. Not only that, but you might share that 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 skin pigment with people from all sorts of different countries speaking all sorts of different languages with different cultures and different religions. But we're just going to call you all brown. Yeah. And that's what I meant when I said earlier about checking that little box on that piece of paper that says I'm white or I'm black. Mm-hmm. I mean, how insulting can you possibly be that you're going to say to me because I'm white that I am I am exactly the same fundamentally um, f- if I'm from, let's say, the Mediterranean somewhere and I speak a Mediterranean language and have a culture and history that goes back to that particular time. Mm-hmm. Versus somebody in the British Isles, let's say, that's separated from those from those people by distance and time and culture and language and religion and everything else that matters that makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to take a look at that freckled that freckled faced, red headed, pale skinned person. Look, looking at that person next to the you know the, the the darker skinned you know black haired Mediterranean guy, and say to them that you're both white. And that means you're both guilty of all these sins, mm-hmm. even though you have you have you know your cultures have almost nothing in common, right? And I'm and, and to make that statement about somebody who's black, thinking about the continent of Africa and Australia, and all the history, there's more languages and more religions in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, than anywhere on Earth. Yeah. I'm gonna lump all of those people in together and put a little check mark there that says I'm black. 
making no distinction between whether I'm from the east or the west, from the desert, from the jungle, from the south, you know, with, 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 with different religions and languages. How arrogant can you be? And suddenly we, that's so normal now that we're all convinced that if, our, if the color of our skin is such that I have to mark this box white, that I'm the, just the same as everybody else who marks that box white yep. or black. It's, it's fucked up. It's fucked up. Um, from what I understand, the, like the dawn of racial thinking, thinking in this way didn't even, it like, I don't think people know this. I think people think that people thought of race like white, black, brown, yellow. I think they thought that we thought that way all the way throughout history, but Mm. that's like fairly recent. You know, it's like, we're talking like right before world war one. Okay. So like early 1900s, like they used to consider you know, if you ask anybody today, you got, you know, uh, the most Italian dude you've ever seen in your life, okay? Uh, and then you got, you know, Patty O'Houlihan over here, yep. just the most most Irish guy you've ever seen. Yep. Those, the, back in the day, they were not... The, the, oh, yeah. You know, they're not the same. Yeah. Know? Now they are. Um, that, I, I don't even, I think it was around that same era, early 1900, when Irish people were even considered... That was the first time they were considered white. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Oh, yeah. That was like, from what I understand, based on like recruiting, you know, like we have to bond all these white people together so that we can, you know, oh, yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, I can't help but think about uh, your boy, um, uh, what's his name? The guy from um, Gangs of New York. Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. So I can't help but think about that movie. Um Shout out to Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Crazy good movie. Yeah. But, and again, I don't know how much of that's fiction, but talking about a time in New York when it was just, um, you know, today you go to New York and there's a lot of immigrants. But back then, everybody was immigrants. The, the people that were, uh, you know, first, second generation Americans were like few and far between. Yeah. It was flooded with people from all over the world. And the Irish people during the potato famine in particular, they were coming over like, you know, in droves. Hey. And those people were considered at the time um, less desirable for employment, um, you know, because there were so many of them and they were they were seen as coming in and taking all the jobs and resources from everybody else. Yeah. Uh, You know, they they were looked upon as the lowest class of person uh, below many brown people, let's say. Um, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the guy, a guy who I bring up all the time, Thaddeus Russell, he wrote a book called The Renegade History of the United States. Um, and he, in that book, talks about how back then, black people and Irish people, uh, and this goes back even further than, we're talking like slavery times, mm. okay? Uh, black people and Irish people were considered the same, even though their skin was wildly different colors. They right. both, you know, they were both thought of as, you know, white. the white Protestants were thought of as people of their head, like they exist in their head, mm. in their mind. Yep. Black people and Irish people are people of the body. Mm. They, it's it's sex, it's relaxing, it's dancing, it's drinking. Gotcha. Um, and it, when you think about it in terms like that, maybe they do have more in common, you know? And I mean, when you start thinking about how America represses things like that, you know, the black community has become a lot more like the white community. And that's... You know, that's like an element of racism that people don't really talk about is that yeah. like we kind of crushed their spirit and their end, you know. Um, yeah, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do we do that 
kind of stuff all the time with like uh, the Native Americans, like the ones who that we didn't kill, we would try to re-educate and basically make them white. You know? Oh yeah. Like your skin's not going to be white, but you're going to be white. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've listened to many a sad NPR podcast. Um, oh, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of one in particular where they were they were talking about the people coming back from the Civil War. That that the men, you know, from the Revolutionary War period, from the Civil War period, you know, the War of 1812, all that stuff in between, that those people kind of grew up with this battle hardened uh, culture that they couldn't avoid. And they were hard men. Mm -hmm. And then when the country started to flourish economically following that, that the the children being brought up in that next generation were soft. And, you know, this is this is something you hear about. It repeats through, throughout the, throughout Absolutely. cultures and times. But that what they had to do, these young boys coming up in this warless period, that they needed to replace that to be hard, to become tough. And that's when football was invented. Uh, yeah. So collegiate football was invented as a replacement for war. Yeah, that was. So, so that men could test themselves against each other. I believe that was a radio lab. Maybe podcast. it was radio lab. Yeah, that and you were talking about the, the Native American League, the yeah, football yep, team. Yep. And those people were the first ones to realize that there was nothing in the rules against throwing the ball. Yeah, yeah. And they started actually beating white teams. Yeah. Yeah, it was a tremendous episode. If you guys can look that up, I have no idea what the episode was called. It was called American Football. Oh, American Football. Yep. It was tremendous. Um, yeah, Radio Lab, you know, for being a bunch of libs, they, they put out some good content. <laughs> some, it's been, some. Oh, it's been a long time since I listened. I used to listen to, like, every Radio Lab. Yeah, I, I specifically remember uh, Patient Zero, that episode. Yeah, that was a great episode. That, yeah, about, about AIDS. Um, another tremendous. thing that you had mentioned, when you were talking in, oh, this, that, this actually, I think, is from the episode that you've got coming out, so I won't go into it too <laughs> much in detail, but uh, it's um, the development of... Um, seeing color. You remember talking about that? I sure your, do. Yep. Yeah, um, and I think that there's something, you know, tied to that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't want to go too deep into yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I'll gonna, ruin your content. Yeah, it's you coming out. That's coming out Wednesday, you guys. Yeah, yeah. You, you keep a track. But I, I do want to ask you about one other thing. And actually, I tried I, to go ahead. I, I want to touch back yeah, on yeah, Coca-Cola really quick. I love Diet Coke. Uh, I think the Diet Pepsi is disgusting. Yeah, I think you mean Coke Zero. No, Coke. I, I hate Coke Zero, yeah, too. Coke, Diet Coke. Coke Good old-fashioned Coke Zero. Or, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, now you Coke got Zero, me confused. <laughs> <laughs> it's Diet Coke for me. I think it tastes way better. But I am I think, yeah, I think fuck Coke, man. Like, I don't... I'm not going to... I mean, I think that this monster juice that I'm drinking right here is actually distributed by Coke. But, <laughs> you know, I'll figure it out. I'm just going to start drinking water all the time. I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe they said that, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's very inappropriate. And put on anybody, any other group, it would be unconscionable. Mm. But here we are. So that, yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I am against Coke. I think that's fucked up. Yeah, it's, it absolutely is. Um, but the last, really, the last uh, item that I had um, a note of that I wanted to talk to you about is another glorious Rand Paul video uh, mm -hmm. that my wife sent to me the other day. Rand Paul. Yes. Not so, the best libertarian in the world, but not the best man. He's the best we got. He's the best we got. No, he's, he's not, uh, he's not what his dad was, Yeah, but he's the best Who we is? got. And I've, I, I appreciate Rand Paul. Yeah, I do too. Um, so he was, um, he was doing one of those, uh, grilling sessions where they bring in a, a nominee, um, a Biden nominee for assistant health secretary, and uh, they, they get a chance to ask questions, uh, you know, publicly to see how they respond and try to, you know, uh, figure out whether they want to confirm them for that role. 
and and Biden nominated uh, Rachel Levine. Um, Rachel Levine is Avril Levine's mom. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> wait a minute, Avril Levine's dad. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really know. And this is this is the thing I said I, I wasn't exactly sure how to how to tiptoe around. So I'm going to do my best. I'll but, do my best to just trample all over. Uh, it, thank so. you, thank you. <laughs> Uh, but it's true. So Rachel Levine did uh, or does, I think, occupy a similar role on the state level, I think, in Pennsylvania. And uh, she used to be uh, he used to be used to be a man and, tra- and trans- tra- uh, transferred trans- transfer. I don't know how to say it. Transmogrified. Um, tra- transmogrified. Uh, so now so now she's now she's Rachel Levine. And so she's up there talking to Rand. Um, Rand has a chance to ask her questions. And this to me was brilliantly done. So I want to lay it out the way he, he did right. for you. So he says to her um, a bunch of statements before he asks any questions. And the statements he's making is about genital mutilation. Okay. So when I say the word genital, and he didn't get specific, but when I say the word genital mutilation, what, what comes to your mind? The thing that comes to my mind is circumcision. I think of like yep. even male circumcision. I think that's genital mutilation. I don't really think we should be doing it, but the, you know that's like kind of another issue. Yep. But I think of like more specifically, I think of like Muslim world, like bingo, you know that kind of stuff. Bingo bongo. So I, I think that's called a clitorectomy. Yes, um, if I'm not mistaken. But for the audience, um, just to give you a nice gruesome visual, um, this is where the clitoris is either um, uh, cut uh, or removed or partially removed. And the idea behind it um, for the religious folks in the Middle East, uh, let's say, and in Africa and and places that have uh, that particular type of Muslim uh, culture, they do they do that intentionally as a rite of passage. Just the way that uh, Jewish Jewish people and Christian people have their infants, um, you know, circumcised. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the idea is that if they remove um, the pleasure from the sexual act that they will remove all of the dangers that come along with that, like infidelity and things like that. Yeah. So this seems to be the rationale behind it, but it's a terrible thing. Uh, it's a violent act against an innocent child who cannot uh, make the, de- the decision and cannot protect themselves. You ever heard any Muslim women describe that no. process? It's, it's a nightmare. It's, it's awful. Just awful. Can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine. And, and you know, those civilizations those societies over there they're not you know the most developed in the world either so it's not like you take your daughter to some hospital mm. and a doctor you know you right know, you know it's no it's some some other muslim lady comes over to your house and saws your clitoris mm. off jesus yeah i mean you know i'm sorry that's brutal i don't mean to but just like be frank with you this is a awful awful thing that happens yep. so no I, I it makes me think of uh you know, I had uh, my my daughter fell off the bed and she broke her collarbone when she was like two years old, mm-hmm. and she cried. Uh, she cried herself to sleep because she she cried so much she was exhausted, and we you know we took her to the hospital and had all that fixed. See, if you're a parent and you see your child in pain, that is the worst torture. It is the worst hell that I that I can that I can describe. Um, for for some for a culture to have something like that as part of a kind of a, a, a normal you know, um, a normal thing. You know, I just, I just can't imagine. The point is Rand Paul's talking about this in the beginning. He says, um, you know, that the WHO and all these different kind of international health communities have stated, um, you know, 
unequivocally that genital mutilation is wrong, that imposing it on minors is completely wrong, that it's a crime against humanity. So he opens that up. Agreed. And then asks uh, Rachel Levine about um, her... Um, about her feelings on allowing minors to go through uh, gender reassignment surgery, uh, taking hormone blockers, and that sort of thing. So he frames the question in the in the frame of genital mutilation in the same way you and I were talking about, you know, infant, you know, infants getting their clits removed. Sure. Um, and then talks and then asks the question to Rachel, and she says something like this. She says that that. Um, the transgendered uh, topic is complex and nuanced and that she would be happy to meet with Rand and his team to talk about Give that in more detail. Brain. He asks the question two more times, very bluntly. She answers exactly the same way. He has, he has to end the segment by saying, let the record show that Rachel Levine refused to answer the question, that she does not believe uh, that, that when he asked her to answer the question, do you believe minors uh, should be allowed to have uh, that sort of genital mutilation occur to them without their, you know, um, being able to make that decision soundly with a fully grown brain. Yeah. And she refused to say no. Yep. I mean, that's uh, leading down some dark paths in my mind. Um, I'm, sh- I'm shaking my head, man. I, I don't know what to say. It's fucked up. Um, and I think it it also kind of highlights how cowardly the left is, you know, like you can't, like you can't just answer the question. Like, I know that you have an opinion. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, I know that you think something about it and you, you hide, but she hides behind that, this line of it's really complicated. If you want to talk about it in private, we can, well, that's the entire fucking point is that you don't do it in private. Rand Paul is trying to, you know, engage in what the process that they're doing, what it's supposed to be about. And she is sidestepping and like subverting it, you know? Right. And so the question is, so this woman is supported this type of behavior in Pennsylvania where she's already a a health secretary Mm -hmm. on the state level. So, and she's transgender herself, obviously. So, you know, maybe she's a biased person in that regard, but she's already supported it openly. She's done it in her state. Then she's going to, she's being, given the opportunity to to do this job on a federal level for every single one of us. And even though she's doing this sort of thing and supporting this sort of thing, she's unwilling publicly to say that she supports it. What the fuck, Kyle? What what kind of situation can you have where a person is actively doing this? You're looking at their behavior. You can see exactly what what they think is okay. Mm -hmm. But you ask them to publicly say you think it's okay and they won't. So clear, clearly there's a reason. Yeah. There's uh, definitely some kind of duplicity going on there. Um, I think, and, you know, I don't know if you remember, but back in the 90s, there was like this satanic panic. You remember oh, yeah. that? Yep. Okay. I think that on some level, we may have a little bit of a pedophile panic going on right now. Yep. Like people just see pedophilia in everything. Yep. That being said... I think that it's real. I mean, I think that there's definitely some truth to it, but this, like, I'm finding it everywhere, I think is maybe a little a little touched, a little affected. Right. But um, I think that... So, you know, maybe where I'm coming from on this is a little bit conspiracy theory-ish, but mm-hmm. I don't really think that it is. I think that this is kind of how 
this progressive element of our culture works. It's like they are just constantly pushing borders back and back and back. And by giving children the agency to decide what their gender is, that they are a girl when actually they're a boy or they're a boy when actually they're a girl, that seems to me like one more step towards saying that a child can consent. You know what I mean? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Wow. And you know what's interesting? I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is just something that I feel like I should say because I've been the person in the past who, you know, I have gay people in my family. I don't, I I love, I love gay people. I don't have anything against gay people, but I have been the type of person in the past who, like when I heard, you know, they would say back before gay marriage was legal, um, if we make gay marriage legal, next thing it's going to be bestiality and kids. And back then, I was like, you're ridiculous. You're a bigot. You're a hateful son of a bitch. Uh, now, I do not feel that way. I I feel like I was wrong back then. I feel like, like I said, that is how this progressive element works. Wow. Constantly shifting towards just, like you were talking about, just complete turning over of the norms. Wow. So that, you know, that's a way that I had never really considered tying those two things together, but I'm going to say it again, the way that I understood that so that the audience can hear it from my, from my perspective. Um, what, what you said is that the support, um, that we see from the liberals, um, for the transgender, um, uh, topic is, is, putting minors in a position where we are supposed to, as a people, as a community, as a society, agree that they have the right and the agency over their own actions, even with with a a not fully developed brain and no life experience, that we're going to become more and more comfortable with the idea that they can consent to something like that. And that once we've done that, once we've once we've given an inch to say that a minor can consent about something that uh, personal to do with their body, that that is not far at all away from having a conversation about whether a minor can consent to sex with an adult. Yeah. And, and that whole, you know, pedophile sort of, sort of, uh, angle is absolutely terrifying. I never thought about it that way. Yep. But you you know, you got to play the long game. If you're a politician, it's a chess game. They're always thinking two or three moves ahead. That is so scary, dude. Um, and more than just politicians, this is kind of something that I was thinking earlier and I, I know that I'm like kind of conflating this cultural thing with the economic thing, with the socialism and, and the communism and how we were wondering how that is still alive. The way that I think it's still alive is the same thing that has to do with that. Th- these people who are like these communist collectivist philosophers, mm-hmm. they're so good at manipulating culture and like they've won okay like the 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 soviet union fell Mm -hmm. but look at america right now they won man like you look back at mccarthyism and you know may yeah maybe he did some stuff that was not nice but he wasn't wrong Mm -hmm. either you know um i really do think that they've kind of won wow so i i think that is scary but true and i think it's maybe a good place to sort of wrap this up you know, you're right when you say when we, you know, we were talking about how the Soviet Union was overthrown by rock and roll and Levi's. Yeah, like the the, the American culture, uh, the Western culture was able to kind of penetrate the the Iron Curtain and it overthrew things from from kind of within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about co- the, the the totalitarian 
uh, you know, and, and, and communist sort of ideology, um, slipping its way in underneath our skin and a package of these nicely worded phrases. Yeah. And before we realize what's happened, uh, it's, it's too much a part of, you know, um, kind of our, the zeitgeist that we can't, we can't do anything about it. Yep. Man. Yep. You're stuck. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that is really how I feel, but uh, you know, I, I guess that's as good a place to wrap up as any. I mean, um, I, I will tell you this one thing that I think we're going to have to do an episode on now, because I noticed a little like, like I said something and you kind of got a little uncomfortable about <laughs> it. I think we have to do an Israel episode now. Ooh, I like that idea. Um, I, I do like that idea. Um, I think we should do that. It does make me a little uncomfortable. So let's explore why in, our, in the next episode. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We'll do We'll do something. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's any, you know, I'm still trying to get this podcasting stuff figured out. Is, is there anything that we need to say? Like, you know, do you want your like Instagram handle out there? Do you want like people to, to follow you on Instagram? Or are you just happy with following people following at two tongues pod? That's a good question. I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit more. And I, I don't really have much of a problem with it. I just haven't done that yet. Yeah. Um, but maybe we will. So, I mean, follow at two tongues pod on Instagram. I think that's, that's really the only social media that we've got going right now. I, I've got profiles on like pretty much everything, but the only one I'm posting on is Instagram. So, um, yeah, l look us up there and we'll see you again in a week. We shall see you guys. Thank you so much. I think what we've got coming at you next probably is going to be our first episode with a guest. I'm really excited to, to do that. And then we will do an Israel episode. And I'm hoping that both Kyle and I will be putting out a couple more solo podcasts yeah. in the near future. Yep, absolutely. All right. Love you guys. Thank you. Bonjour. Mm. Actually, that's that's hello. Goodbye. Whatever that is. Au revoir. There we mm, go. Au revoir. <laughs>